Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is Ram V. Ram, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. You're very welcome. So, first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Ram V. Uh, I write stories. Uh, I've written short stories, but predominantly I'm known for my work in comics and graphic novels. Um, I started off uh, with a self-published book in 2016, and then since then I've gone on to write books for uh, Image, Vault Comics, uh, DC, and Marvel. Uh, currently, I am the author on Justice League Dark, Catwoman, and the upcoming Swamp Thing series for DC. Oh, I'd somehow missed that you were doing Catwoman as well. Congratulations. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm scratching my my street level crime itch with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, and that's how you started, isn't it? As you, you mentioned that self published book, that was Black Mamba, wasn't it? Yes, that was. Um, it was black and white crime noir set in Mumbai. Uh, I think you were one of the first people that I showed the book to. I believe so. Yeah, <laughs> when I was just starting out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll talk more about that and sort of yeah. my reaction to it in a little. So tell us how you got there. How did you, you know, when did you first realize that you wanted to write and how did you get to that point where you self-published that first book? Uh, I think, I think my, my sort of inclination for writing was, was evident at quite a young age. I was 13, maybe 14. I'd read Lord of the Rings and, um, you know, one fine, one fine afternoon, I decided to sit down on a, old Windows 3.1 computer and, and start typing out a, what was going to be the next great fantasy trilogy. Um, but I ended up stopping at about 40,000 words. But looking back at it now, even then, I realized that as a 13-year-old, to have the commitment to sit down every day and, and work up to 40,000 words, uh, that kind of, that kind of uh, enthusiasm is, is, uh, is rare. Uh, and so... Yeah, I think that was the first time I, I realized that I had an interest in writing. And I'd been writing pretty much uh, ever since. I'd always written short stories, poems, um, as I was you know, studying and, and working as a chemical engineer. Then I think 2013, I quit my job. And, and by that time, writing had become more than just a hobby. I had had a few things published, um, had short stories published with online markets. Uh, and, uh, yeah, 2013, I decided to start writing uh, a bit more professionally. 2014, I moved to the UK to study creative writing. Uh, and then 2015 is when we, uh, I worked with artists that I knew from India uh, on, Bla on Black Mumba. And 2016 is when we put it out via Kickstarter. That, uh, that's Dev Pramanik, the artist you're talking about. Uh, yeah. Well, there were multiple artists on the books. Uh, so Dev oh, Pramanik okay. was one of the artists. Uh, Kishore Mohan was the other artist. And then uh, Roshan Kutchenel was, was another artist on the book. Aditya Bidikar, who, who I've collaborated on several books since, was also the letterer on the book. Well, I mentioned uh, Dev because I know that you your first, what I would consider anyway, your first major work for the you know, for the American mainstream market yeah. was with him, wasn't it? That was Paradiso. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and that that came off of Black Mumba as well. Um, I think it was one of the conventions that you were at uh, where I met Eric Stevenson. I showed him Black Mumba 
and then he asked what we were working on and I showed him pages of, of Paradiso, which was, uh, which is just a few pages in at that point. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's how we got started. And then Dave and I went on to do eight issues and two, two volumes of Paradiso at Image, which, um, yeah, which was, as you say, the first work that either of us had really done, uh, in for an American slash international readership. So what made you go the, cause I should, for people who haven't seen it, and obviously that's going to be most listeners, Black Mumba is a, a really well-produced, hardcover mm-hmm. graphic novel. Um, what made you decide to produce something so, you know, kind of prestige format, as it were, rather than just, say, putting your stuff up on, on online and then submitting pitches to publishers, which is what, you know, how most people get into comics these days? Yeah, I mean, um, my... My aim with with any of the projects that I do really isn't just to write uh, the, the book, although that is that is the part that is creatively satisfying to me. But I believe that how the book is packaged, how it's structured, the way it looks, the way it feels, all says something about the story. And so, so the art kind of extends outside of the bounds of the medium, if you will. Uh, and I didn't want produce something that felt like it was a newcomer or an, or an amateur trying to trying to make comics i wanted to produce something that i would be proud to to put on the shelf right next to any of the any of the authors or any of the books that i enjoyed reading so that was kind of always the aim uh, with, with making the, the way it was uh, i was lucky in that you know i was married to a, a designer and i knew all of these phenomenal artist so it wasn't very hard to to make that that package look good wow so uh so that's so your wife's a designer yeah and you had you had gotten to know artists while you were in india presumably through a, a comics culture there yes so so india's had a long history of of comics both made in india and then kind of purchased and printed from reprinted from uh european markets not so much marvel dc more Mandrake, Phantom, uh, Flash Gordon, or Tintin, uh, and, and Asterix. Uh, so, so more of a European comics lineage there. Uh, and of course, uh, there's been a local scene, both superheroes and non-superhero stuff. Um, and so comics were never out of the realm of my, my reading consciousness, if you will. Uh, and so... I, when I first started writing, I, I went to one of the one of the earliest comic book conventions ever to happen in India, which was around 2012, 2013, um, and that's where I met most of the most of the artists that I've collaborated with since. It seems crazy that the first major comics event in India was so recent. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was always comics had always been like this underground culture, um, as as it is in most other places. Um, and the real kind of first pop culture event thing just happened in 2012, 2013. Until then, it had it had all been kind of impromptu gatherings uh, organized on Facebook or something like that. Um, and then since then, uh, and I know the guys who run the run the events quite well. And since then, they've gone on to being acquired by Reed, and they've put on some shows where they get. They get crazy, like fifty, sixty thousand footfall per day, 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Mind you, yeah. big, big market, you know, a lot of people in India. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, I always get a, get a joy out of telling people, you know, they're the world's second largest English-speaking country. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I only consider that. That's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, going back to Black Mumba, um, the – the, the presentation of it, when you first handed me a copy, I think you handed me and Andy Diggle copies at the same time yeah, yeah. Um, at uh, a Thought Bubble convention, if I recall correctly. And That's right. We both kind of looked at it and went like, well, what does he need our help for? Because <laughs> <This is, laughs> like, you know, it was so well produced. The package itself was so lovely that, uh, yeah, it kind of threw us for a moment because we were like, well, what is this? We weren't quite understanding where you were coming from, you know, because it looked as if you were already published and producing stuff and a veteran. And, you know, so we were like, oh, what's okay. But I know that we both enjoyed it. Um, and it's, it, I think I said this to you, it was one of those things where I could see you know, I mean, it's you can see that it's an early work. Yeah. But I, I could see that there was something there as well. You know, there was a good command of the medium, uh, which is always nice to see in, you know, in a young writer, because sometimes that can take years to come to fruition. So, sure. but that's presumably because you said you'd grown up reading comics as well as other stuff. So you were familiar with the form. When did you decide to actually start writing comics rather than prose was it fairly you know because you said that you started writing that novel and realized that uh maybe that was too much of a commitment were you already thinking about comics before then or was that what made you sort of think maybe something a bit more kind of you know fast and poppy might suit me better no actually uh i had never considered writing comics until i was maybe 22 23 um my history with with comics is uh is fraught with tragedy uh, when I was when I was a kid reading comics, my um, my dad at some point decided that I had to read proper books, and so he took all of my comics, and I had a fairly large collection, uh, and he put them in trash bags, and he and he uh, and he threw them away, and uh, for the longest time, uh, you know, I, I stopped reading comics because of it, um, and. I moved to the U.S. to study chemical engineering when I was 19, 20. Um, and at the time, I'd, I'd begun dating this this girl who was into into the goth scene in Philly. Uh, and it was it just seemed to be the perfect timing for it all because uh, she had just discovered Sandman at the time. And she gave me volume one of Sandman for my birthday. Uh, and I think over the next week, week and a half or so, I devoured all of Sandman, went and found everything uh, Neil Gaiman had done in comics until that point, uh, then discovered somewhere that uh, it was it was Alan Moore who'd recommended Neil uh, for, for his work at Vertigo. So I said, okay, let me find out who Alan Moore is, and then went on to read everything uh, Alan had done uh, in comics. And kind of followed that that vertigo um era lineage from there and went on to read ns ellis uh, went on to read your work with the coldest city at that at that point um but yeah yeah so it was it was at that time that i really even began to think that that comics could be a a, a medium that i'd be interested in 
So I had no idea that you were a, you were a closet goth. <laughs> <laughs> well, Welcome. It was all new to me. I moved to the. It was the first time I had I had lived anywhere that my parents weren't in the same vicinity. You right, know, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I was just like, bring on all the experiences. I will take them all. Uh, it was a good time. It was a good time. I uh, I fell in love with jazz. I fell in love with. Um, playing the guitar, a lot of uh, creatively very engaging time. I went to a went to a really good university too. I went to UPenn. They were very encouraging of uh, students, kind of branching out and uh, learning more than just their specialization. You know. So. Yeah. No, that's excellent. Um, so okay, so so you got into the comic scene and you started getting uh, work and what have you, and you've made you know a good name for yourself since mm-hmm. and uh as we've said you know you're kind of now writing what people consider the mainstream comics working on some of the big title superheroes and stuff so uh so you I mean you're you're not fairly well established now in the scene um so what's a how do you go about writing let's you know let's get straight into the like what is a typical day like for you well, in terms of in terms of routine um I'm I'm a terribly late riser, so I, I'll wake up around ten thirty, eleven, and I need like two cups of coffee to get going, which is not ideal. But yeah, I spend spend most of that time just kind of thinking about what I want to do uh, in the rest of the day, and then I sit down to kind of write seriously uh, around twelve. Um, and usually that involves me kind of sitting down and figuring out outlines and, and planning out pages to, to begin with, uh, especially since we're talking comics. Um, and then I'll write down everything by hand in a book first, uh, everything shorthand for, for just for myself. Um, and then once I've figured thing out, things out there, I'll start kind of transcribing that onto, onto a proper script using Scrivener. Um, Scrivener. And then I do that until about three or four in the afternoon. Then I take a break. Um, I read, I uh, watch some TV. I, I do things that are otherwise creatively engaging. Uh, and then I'll sit down and do a second session of writing post-dinner somewhere around 10, 30, 11. And I'll write till about two in the morning. Uh, so that's that's typically my, my daily routine. And how much, on average, do you get written per day following that kind of routine? It varies. Uh, I can pretty dependably do four or five pages in a day. Um, but if push comes to shove, I can also get, you know, 10, 11 pages done a day, but it's not ideal. Um, four or five pages per day is, is great. Um, which means I can about get, a, get about 20, 24 pages done um, in, in a four or five day period, which is, ideal for me yeah that, that's about the average for most comics writers isn't it you know one issue a yeah. week is kind of the standard um i'm intrigued that you can work after dinner in this you know those kind of two sessions i even when i was younger and would literally you know regularly stay up late into the early hours of the morning which i do not do anymore um but even <laughs> when i did i I never felt like working after I'd had evening dinner. It always kind of slows me down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of have my dinner around eight or nine and I go through like a, a slow period right after then. 
But somewhere around 10, 30, 11, I'll, I'll usually get a second wind. And I'll, it's part of it's also because I, I sleep in. So I don't, I don't really wake up too early. So my body's still, mind's still ready to go at that point. Um, and it's nice because I know, I know it can be quiet early in the morning as well, but, but I, I mean, I live in the city, I live in London proper. So usually mornings are, are still quite active and busy. It's really kind of post midnight that you hit that perfect quiet, um, that you get. So, so 12 to three tends to be a really, really productive time for me. Oh, wow. Yeah, that really is kind of a nocturnal writer lifestyle, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> if if you're, and again, this is a question that always comes up with comics writers because we are generally writing, you know, an issue a week. When do you take mm -hmm. the time to work on, work out new stuff, you know, to come up with ideas and to plan out future story arcs and what have you, uh, rather than just the stuff that you're writing that particular day? I mean... Those two sessions will, will account for, for time spent, uh, figuring out new ideas as well. Um, but just coming up with new things, it, I suppose, uh, is a, is a thing that I've never had to, to make time for in that my brain is just obsessively thinking of ideas. And, and fortunately, I'm in a place where when I have an idea, I'll know to recognize that I've got something there. Um, I don't write these down. Uh, they'll just linger in my head for, for years until they arrive at a point where I'm like, okay, I have enough to, to put this down on paper and to figure out how to turn it into a story. That's fascinating. So you don't take notes of, you know, sort of ideas that are in those embryonic stages. You just rely on everything being in your head. Yeah, um, I've found that if I put things down on paper, because it, it's a it's a tangible thing that has words and is now finite, uh, it becomes difficult to think of it in in a different way. Whereas if it's not on paper, because I'm forcing myself to to make it all up in my head again uh, and again, I think there's some kind of refining process that happens there um and sometimes you know first three times i put the idea together in my head the same way and then fourth time for some reason my brain decides to add a piece or take out a piece and it turns into something exciting or different uh, and so um and and it'll usually happen that i'll have you know five or six ideas and you know not all five, six should be, should be published stories. And so if I let them fester for, for years, uh, a couple of years later, you know, those five or six will get filtered down to one or two. Uh, and, and because they've lingered, they're probably good ideas is what I tell myself. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand that. The, the good ideas are the ones that stick with you. Yeah. And the, uh, the lesser ones kind of fall by the wayside. Yeah. And, and almost you obsessively chew over them. Um, and, and I think there is something to be said, something of value in the process of just re-narrating the same idea over and over in your head until, because each time you do it, there are gaps. Of course, no one thinks of an idea, um, and knows every scene and every line and every character. And so 
when you're trying to build it in your head, there are always gaps and you're kind of forcing your brain to make stuff up each time as you go along. Uh, and the more you do it, each time you take a different option, you're kind of running through what the best thing to do to fill up that gap is, if, if, you, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I I do the same thing, but I do it by writing those ideas down. Um, right. You know, when when I write something down in note form, it's not solidified at all. It's me putting those thoughts down and I will happily change stuff and discard old ideas and come up with new ones and, you know, replace stuff, you know, without uh, any issue at all. But it sounds like for you, once it's, so once it's down, once you've started writing, it kind of solidifies. Yeah. That's some kind of weird mental block. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes, it becomes tangible. It, it has a shape and then I can't unsee that shape because that's it's there in front of me. So when you're, okay. So it sounds like you are a planner in the sense that you do think your ideas through before you start writing them. You know, you have, I wouldn't necessarily call it an outline, but you have an idea of what you're doing that you've thought about quite a lot before you put pen to paper or start typing, but you do it all in your head. Yes. Um, I'm definitely a planner. Um, unless I, I specifically decide to, to not plan on things. So we'll, we'll get to that because blue and green was unplanned in, in a, in a lot of ways. Oh, okay. But, but otherwise I'm, I'm certainly a planner and once, and this is only to a point where I decide that the idea is worth pursuing. And once that's done, I'll usually sit down and, and outline and um, plan almost obsessively down to, down to minute details. Um, but also I'm even at that point when I'm scripting, I'm aware of the, aware of the fact that everything I've planned can, you know, is to be ignored if, if at the point of writing the script, I want to go a different way for some reason. Yeah. So, so planner, but not someone who sticks to the plan. And it's only in the initial <laughs> stages that that I don't want things down on paper. I, I think most of the writers that I've spoken to, and I'm the same as well. Uh, yeah. You know, everybody to some degree or another, even the the really precise planners, as you say, we all accept that things may change once we actually start putting the words on the paper. You know, but the yeah. the outline is there as a guide and a, and a fallback. So how you said these are quite detailed when you do actually then come to start outlining. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, to a, to a point where again, because we're talking about comics, um, I'll outline everything down to, down to scenes. Um, I'll, I'll ensure that the scenes exist for, for more than just one or two reasons. And so there's density and, and complexity in, in each of the scenes. Um, yeah. So, so once everything's broken down in terms of scenes and what's happening in those scenes, then I'll start, when I start on the issues, I'll, I'll make page plans and I'll kind of write down what happens on every page. Um, and you're, you're partially to, to blame for this format because, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, yeah, because when I, when I started uh, working with Scrivener, uh, I followed the, followed the template that you wrote for them. And then they had the, they had the, you know, page plan and turn it into these little cards and, and start writing them on pages. So I, that's kind of stuck with me, uh, at least when it comes to, comes to making comics. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh man. 
Okay, tell me more about. I like the idea of the. You know, every scene has to be there for more than one reason. Tell me more about that. That's a nice. Uh, you know, a nice way to put things. Yeah, this this comes from my time um, studying studying creative writing at, at City University in London, um, and when we were when we were outlining, that's one of the things that really stuck with me. Jonathan Meyerson was the director of the program there, and he's a, he's a novelist and a BAFTA winning screenwriter. Um, and it was he mentioned that at some point, you know, while critiquing one of my pieces, he said why does this scene exist? And I gave him a reason. He says, yes, but what's the other reason? And I didn't have one. He said, well, every scene has to have two reasons to exist. One is this, is this reason that it's obviously there for, but you have to have something else going on either, you know, in the subtext, either underneath or, or it builds into a, into a bigger picture somehow, because that's how stories kind of, build layers and they, they build complexity um, and and readers now at least modern readers are, are in a place where they're they're reading minds are used to tracking multiple things and so if you're not encouraging that level of involvement and that level of work from your reader then then you're kind of missing out on something there so uh, it's it's a thing that stuck with me so usually most of my scenes will do two or more things or more <laughs> that sounds like an yeah. awful lot of uh, work that you create for yourself but it does result in i mean you know being as someone who has read your work it does result in this density as you say of uh, you know within the scenes certainly something like i remember reading the first volume of paradiso and being kind of feeling almost overwhelmed yeah. at the sheer amount of stuff that was yeah. that was in there yeah, I mean the the thing that people most talk about when they when they read uh, either my work or if I'm narrating an outline to someone, the reaction I usually get is all that in a single issue, <laughs> uh, and and yeah, it's because of that layering. And it's not like I write in a in a super compressed way. It's not like you know my my stories aren't jumping from location to location in every panel. Um, it's just that. Even in a scene with two people talking in a, in a restaurant, it has to be more about more than just what they're talking about, you know? Mm. Um, and because you can do that, then you can essentially tell two, maybe one and a half uh, stories in, in the same span that you would otherwise tell one story in. Um, and so, and I'm also quite obsessed with, with the uh, structure in, in comics. Uh, and so, if you if you design a story cleverly, you can do complex structural things and, and fit a lot more content into into the same number of pages. Well, that is one of the advantages of the comic medium, isn't it? Is because you've got the the static images alongside yeah. the words, and you've got the sequential panel format. You, yeah, there's a lot of formalist things that you can do, um, yeah. which I know you do uh, experiment with. Um, like Kieran, actually, in that sense, Kieran Gillen, who's obviously been on the show, and you and I both know. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. You, your formalism occasionally strikes me as quite similar to his in that you're playing with the shape of the comics page. Yeah, and I think um, I think my interests kind of naturally tend towards that kind of formalism. Uh, I think 
one of the the most formative readings I had was was uh, reading Paul Auster, um, and you know I read I read his work quite extensively, City of Glass, Leviathan, and and, and I, I've I've never I've never been one to to be enamored with you know flashy writing or trickery in writing where you've done something clever and I've noticed it and there's joy in that. Rather, when I'm reading Oster, I'm reminded of the fact that, well, you can tell one story that's on the page, but you can also tell another story with how your characters are named. And you can tell stories within stories. You can nest narratives within each other. Uh, and so the levels to which he did that were really influential for me. And, and that's the kind of formalism that I tried to do in comics as well, where there's there's A and there's B, but because in comics you can put A and B next to each other, on top of each other, into each other, you can your the opportunities to to develop A plus B into C, D, E, and F are, are um, interesting and very exciting in comics. So, okay, tell me about Blue and Green then. If that was it sounds like that was quite a departure for you uh, in terms of how you went about writing it. Yeah, partly, partly did a necessity, but also, uh, again, because of this fundamental belief that the art extends outside of, outside of the page. Right. So we were, we were trying to blue and green is a, is a book about jazz, but also about uh, the, the horrific depths of a, of a character's, uh, ambition and and his need to to find his own history and his need to rationalize his lack of achievement in his life if you will uh, and all of that is kind of told in this jazz tinged jazz influence narrative style uh, and so what we wanted to do is bring a little bit of that improvisational nature of jazz into the storytelling so I had an idea of, of the shape of the story. I knew, I knew the kind of big picture events that were going to form the plot, but I didn't outline the story and I didn't have a page plan. I didn't write down the scenes as I, as I usually would. Instead, I would write a page and then send it to Anand Radhakrishnan, who's the artist on the book. And he would draw the page and he would send that art back to me. And then I would look at it and go, okay, I'll sit down tonight and I will write my next page in response to this one. Um, and so I hopefully, and, and it looks like readers enjoyed that uh, is it creates this kind of improvisational nature to the story where every page feels like a storytelling unit. And so every next page feels like it's either in response to that, or it feels like it is a, unit progression from there. Was this a deliberate approach to try and emulate that collaboration and the call and response and improvisation that you get in jazz music? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, so, so that's why we, we did it. It was also a matter of necessity because, um, you know, we got to a point where Adam and I were working so closely on the layouts that it, it didn't make sense for me to give him 10 pages and him come back to me with 10 layouts and us discuss all of them at one go. Instead, it started making sense for Anand and I to just sit down over one page and, and have a 
chat about how it needed to work and where which panels needed to go. So um, because as a writer, I had that level of involvement with the framing of the art. Uh, it made sense also from a from a practical standpoint for us to do it page by page. That must have taken quite a while. <laughs> it did. It did. We worked on it for more than a year um, to, to get the book done. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Good Lord. And that sounds like a fascinating way to work, but it's obviously not something that you could do for every book. You know, it, it had it had some very odd results in that usually when I've finished a piece of work, I'll I'll know where the flaws are in my work and I'll know where I've been successful. But because this was done page by page and because it was done with a level of closeness to it. It became fairly impossible for me to have like an objective big picture of what the story felt like at the end. And so I had absolutely no clue if we had made something that was, I knew we had made something that was interesting, but I had no clue if it had delivered what I had intended for it to deliver. Um, and I had, you know, other people, uh, you know, that I showed it to Dan and Alex, uh, were all part of the writer's studio. And I showed it to Aditya, who was lettering the book. And they were all like, yeah, it does what you want it to do. And I had no clue for the first time. And so it was a really nerve-wracking experience at the end to, to call a book finished, but not know if I had actually finished it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how long ago did that come out? Um, it came out in November. Oh, right. So it's that recent. I didn't quite realize that. Right. Wow. Yeah. So you're still presumably a bit too close to it to objectively look. Well, no, we finished the book in September. So I've had, uh, and I couldn't look at the book again for for uh, for months after after we finished it. And then it came out in November and that's the first time I went back and, and looked at it again. And yeah, I think I think it's successful in in places. In in others, I wish I'd gone a different direction. But um, overall, it it, uh, it it works as a story and has a shape and it, and it delivers what it tries to. So. Oh, so, so that was enough distance for you to be able to to look at it properly. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Just just a couple of months without looking at another page from that book was good enough. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so okay, so, like I said, you're not presumably going to replicate that for every book you write so for on no, no. Uh, on your more sort of regular comics and your more regular schedule um do you you mentioned that you use scrivener which of course allows people to write non-linearly that's one of the reasons i love and and use it you know is that i am a non-linear writer how about you do you start at the start and just go through to the end or do you jump around yeah usually um i'll just because I'll have all the scenes laid out, I'll start right at the beginning and just follow my follow my sort of scene layout from there. Um, the The thing that I run into problems with the most is I'll just write and I'll not worry about the page count, and I'll end up with twenty six pages where there should be twenty two, <laughs> yeah. uh, and then and then I'll just need to find a way to kind of compress four pages back to, to twenty two, and that's just the worst thing in comics. <laughs> uh, and the the other thing, the the only time I do write non linearly is 
when I get stuck. I'll write a scene and for some reason I'll just won't, it just won't feel like it's working for me. Um, and I suppose just a matter of experience. I know when to get up and, and move on to the next scene. And so I'll just leave that scene. I'll leave a couple of pages incomplete and I'll go write the next scene. And usually by the time I finish the next scene, I'll know what needs to happen at the end of this one. If that, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Yeah. And that's something that I think, well, not lots of writers necessarily do, but you know, certainly enough that I know of, uh, yeah. And like I say, myself included, what I will tend to do is not so much start and then move on if I get stuck. Uh, Although you're right that there is a question of experience of sometimes of just knowing like I'm not in the right place to write this particular scene at the moment. Um, But what I tend to do uh, in that case is I will often, because I often write from multiple points of view, I'll often write and, you know, all the scenes in a certain character's point of view or all the scenes that take place in a certain location or just all the conversation scenes and then leave the you know the fight scenes or whatever until last um there's very little rhyme or reason to it with me it's more a case of what do i feel like writing at the moment and then once i've exhausted all of those options then i have to go back and do the bits (laughs) that i maybe didn't feel like doing (laughs) yeah i mean it really is it really is a matter of like whatever works for you right yeah, and I, and I really enjoy that aspect of, of things where you think you've discovered a method of doing something uh, and, and you think it works for you in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And then you talk to someone else and they have a completely different method. And you're just each time I listen to someone else talk about their style and their method, my brain's just like, I can't see how that possibly works for you. <laughs> but yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's half the fun of talking to other writers, isn't it? Is realizing yeah. how very different we all are. You know, we all have these points of commonality, but we are all, yeah, very different in our own ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this this thing called the brain functions in very mysterious ways for people. <laughs> um. So, what's your work environment like? I'm I'm intrigued to find it because you're you know you're domesticated as it were. You live with your yeah. wife, who presumably, yeah. especially right now, you know, is recording this during the pandemic, is working at home with you. Um, yeah. So, what's your what's your setup like? Um, it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm genuinely one of those controlled chaos kind of people. Um, like I have I have a giant desk. It's it's uh, nine feet wide. Uh, no, it's about it's about yeah, it's about nine feet wide, um, and and two and a half, three feet deep. Uh, so it's a big desk. Yeah, and yet there is not an inch of space on it for me to put down a paper <laughs> and 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 write notes. Um, yeah, like. Like there's stuff on my printer. Like if I were to print a page right now, I'd have to move things so it can spit the page out properly. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I've always been this way. And my, my workspace is a terrible mess. But the moment someone, you know, every once in a while, you know, Pooja will organize some of my books because she needs to print something. And then I can't find what she's put where because... Even in that chaos, my at least my head knows exactly where everything is. Yeah, you ha- it's your system. Nobody else can make sense of it, but you know where. But it there is. is no system. But but 
at least there's a, there's a snapshot of where everything is in my brain. And so if anything changes, I can't find it. Right. I meant just in the sense that you can find something, even if nobody yes. else can. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you work in silence or do you have music playing? Depends on what I'm doing. If I, if I'm writing dialogue and if I'm, if I'm writing more granular stuff, uh, I'll work in, in relative silence. Um, if I'm outlining, if I'm, if I'm writing action scenes or, or something that's really atmospheric, uh, in terms of how it visually works, um, I'll write with, with music on. And I find that music really acts as a catalyst for, for me, um, when I'm, when I'm writing certain things. So music's definitely a very important part of my writing experience, if you will. Are you one of these people who makes a playlist for each book or? I mean, I, I'd hate to be uh, anywhere near as organized as that, but <laughs> there is definitely a playlist for every book. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. A small amount of organization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just songs that I go like, oh, that works with this one. Or, or sometimes I'll be coming up with an idea and, and I'll, I'll be, I'll feel like I need to hear the music that that goes with these visuals in my head and and i'll just keep all of those things that i find at various points in time and so by the time I'm, i sit down to write it I, you know I, i'll usually have a selection of songs that goes with that and you find that that helps sort of you know put keep you in the mood for the particular scene or the characters that you're writing or, or sometimes the it'll spur on the idea that the whole thing is framed on as well. Like, um, I recently took over the Catwoman issue from the previous creative team. Joel Jones was writing it, um, and issue twenty five, they wanted me to come in and kind of do a one shot, um, self contained story, um, and I kind of wanted to do something that hadn't been done in a Catwoman book before. Uh, and I was kind of struggling with, okay, what do I do here? Because it had to tie into other events as well. And then all of a sudden I said, okay, I can take what is otherwise just a, just a regular heist story, but I can juxtapose it with this other narrative, which is the Catwoman dancing with a tiger that's trying to kill her. Um, set to flamenco tones in my head. And that came from just listening to a, a an artist called Rosalia, who had done a bunch of flamenco-inspired pop music. Uh, I was just listening to the song, and then this... It, it has a visual of her sat at a, at a dinner table, and there's a wolf on the table growling at her. And then all of a sudden it clicked, and I was like, okay, this works. Um, and it, and it, it seemed to go over well with people. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, I was going to say, that's a really tough task to set yourself to say, okay, I'm going to do an issue of this comic that's been going for literally decades and do yeah. something that's never been done before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know? I mean, but that has to be, it has to be the challenge. Otherwise, at some point, if I feel like I'm not doing anything new or interesting with it, uh, and and new only in context of what I've read. So it helps that I haven't read all the issues that have come before me. Um, so so I'm not reinventing the wheel if I don't know what the wheel looks like in the first place. So, 
Um, but there has to be a sense of it being uniquely mine in, in some way for me to be enthusiastic about it. Um, so even, even when I get, you know, I have conversations, people are like, Hey, do you have a, do you have a Batman idea? And I have read a lot of Batman stories, but I have, I feel that what I, what is a unique take. Uh, and so I need that to be, to be enthusiastic about what I'm doing. Yeah, that makes sense. So how do you go about, once you, when you've finished a draft, how much do you revise it, given that you have already planned it out quite, you know, quite a lot and then wrote in a mostly linear fashion? Do you find that you have to do much revision? Do you wait until the art comes back before doing revision? No, no, I, I usually do a couple of rounds of revision before um, I even send it to the editor. Um, so I'll do a first draft, then I'll revise everything. And when, it's more it's more really punching up the dialogue um, in most cases. Uh, and then I'll do a third round just to make sure I haven't made a fool of myself and left in any typos or, or any terribly bad sounding descriptions in there. But yeah. <laughs> so you're not doing structural revisions at that stage? No, no. Structural, everything structural is ideally on, on paper before I start scripting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of, I think most comics writers are, are like that just because there isn't the time to do massive structural revisions, uh, unless you're writing, you know, a, a GN where you've got that kind of time built into the deadline. But if you're doing monthly comics yeah, and as you say, you know, you have to, m most people turn around one issue a week, you often don't have the time to do those kind of structural things once you've got the script into shape because you could lose like two days work. Yes, absolutely. Um, but also because I'm preoccupied with, with story structure um, before I sit down to write it, generally my stories, at least in my head, only work if they are exactly in the structure that I intended them to be in. Uh, and so there have been occasions where I'll get notes where editors will go, no, we need something else to happen here and, and we can't do it this way. And then because it's not in the structure that I intended it, I would much rather go and do a, a complete rewrite than do a structural revision. Like structural revisions, I abhor on, a, on, a, on an intrinsic level. <laughs> it's the same thing with why I won't put down the idea on paper um, when it's beginning. Because once it's down on paper, I can't unsee it. Uh, and so it becomes the greatest struggle for me to put down something on paper and then have to structurally unsee it. Yeah. I, I, I can sympathize with that to an extent because I have the issue where I'll, I, you know, I've had editors in the past suggest revisions, structural revisions to something. And I'll say, but you don't understand, like, you know, this is deliberate. This happens here because of this happening somewhere else. And if you change this, it's going to change this and it will have this snowball effect. And, you know, it's, it's all there for a reason. It's all deliberate yeah. and kind of tied together. And sometimes I feel like we're the only people who, not the only people who care about it, but we see it because we wrote it. You know, we see that more deeply than others. And, and that's kind of the point, right? I mean, you're hired to write for DC or people read your books because of what you can do in that book. 
and what what you can uniquely do with the story uh and um beyond a point if if something else needs to happen and it doesn't really sound or ring true to your vision of it then i'd much rather do a rewrite that does ring true to my vision of what the thing would be rather than try and somehow create like a mutant born out of your vision but with someone else's structural uh pointers on it you know mm. no, no, i agree i mean it, it's it's difficult sometimes to reconcile that with the commercial reality of needing to be you know, a paid writer. Uh, but I absolutely agree with you. And I, I throw a tantrum, throw a tantrum. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. All right. Let's start to bring this to a close. What do you think you're pretty good at then? I don't know, really. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. Um, I suppose I'm good at finding a way to convey the intangible things, the, the nebulous things. Um, but I always take, take pride in being able to make readers feel something that's difficult to just put into, into words or difficult to just show visually on a panel. Something complex like, like the idea of, of a person being, being lost, uh, and, and, being kind of numb at a funeral, um, which which happens uh, early on in Blue and Green, uh, and a number of people that reacted and said, "Oh man, I felt that." Like that to me is is something that I think is beautiful about about writing or any kind of art um, is being able to convey more than what's just there. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, that would I would say is something at least I try to be good at. All right, then. Well, what do you wish you were better at? Uh, I wish I was better at writing clever dialogue. Um, and, and this comes from, you know, my love for, for Azarello's dialogue or, or Warren Ellis's dialogue um, in, in that there's always the right combination of words to make their characters sound smart or, or, or venomous or... Um, you can convey personality just through just through the dialogue, and, and I feel like I could I could certainly do more to to be better at it. Mm. Oh, couldn't we all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, then, uh, finally, what is something that you have read recently uh, in any format uh, where the writing really impressed you, and why? I'm reading a book called the 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 Sunken Land Rises uh, by M. John Harrison. I uh, recently won the the Goldsmiths Prize, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's just I find I find prose with momentum to be the most beautiful thing. It's part of the reason I really enjoy Paul Auster. Part of the reason I really enjoy Michael Chabon is once you start reading, you can't you almost have to stop yourself from from reading just another paragraph, uh, next, just the next page, um, and it's not because there's anything particularly plotty or mysterious happening where you need to know what happens next. It's just the quality of prose. The words kind of push you into the next sentence each time. Um, and that's something I really enjoy about, about good prose. Uh, and, and I think it's there. It's always 
joyful for me when I discover a writer who has that quality to their prose. And I think, uh, uh, and John Harrison has that um, in spades in this book. He absolutely has it, not just in that book, but in pretty much all of his work. Yeah, I mean, he is one of our foremost prose craftsmen, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, All right, so Ram, where can people find you online? I'm supposed to be in a lot of different places, but I'm only usually active on Twitter. Uh, it's about all I can manage in terms, terms of online presence. So you can find <laughs> me at the right ROM. Um, and if you are less interested in my words and more interested in imagery, you can find me at Rambi writes on Instagram. Uh, all right. And what work of yours would you recommend listeners check out if they haven't read anything by you before? Well, my two most recent things, uh, are also my two most appreciated things. Uh, and so, the Savage Shores, which came out from Vault uh, last year, and uh, Blue and Green, which came out from Image Comics this year, are, are both things I would encourage people who are new to my work to check out. All right. Excellent. And for what it's worth, I haven't read Blue and Green, but I have read Savage Shores, and yes, that's excellent. So uh, that gets my recommendation as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Ram, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that's also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.